I remember when my daughter first learned about the idea of being transgender. I don't know, Misasha, if you remember me telling you the story at the time, but my kid was in kindergarten and there was a classmate of hers who, in my kid's words, wants to be a boy when she grows up. And my daughter said, well, how does that happen? I mean, can you just grow a penis when you grow up? And then she pauses, one, one thousand, two, one thousand. She goes, besides, what's she going to do about her bangs? I love that. You really realize kids' priorities, right? So I did not go into the specifics about surgery and hormones when it came to like that first part of her question, because she was five years old. But I explained sometimes that people are born into bodies that don't reflect who they really are. And recently I was realizing in our schools now, based on the conversations I've had at various PTAs, there are actually a lot of parents who would never have had the conversation I had with my kid when she was five years old, because for many excuses, right? The LGBTQ spectrum of people goes against their values, their religion. You know, they'd be horrified if a school were to ever talk about, quote, those people, let alone say that they're people who exist on this spectrum like this. This is how we show up and they are worthy of respect and humanity, just like everybody else. So especially with conversations about race also being at the front of our minds and being aware of this incredibly difficult and dangerous reality of being a black transgender individual, we wanted to bring you a conversation with two people who live this transgender reality. So Jamie is an old friend of mine who I only learned has a transgender daughter because of their incredible work on advocacy and normalizing identity, which was on social media. So miraculously, social media did something amazing for us there to connect us again. But one of the things Jamie said in our conversation in the spring was that she realizes how privileged Dempsey is. And when I asked what that meant, Jamie said, well, she's a pretty white girl. So clearly there's something about race and identifying as transgender, like you mentioned, Misasha. And along those lines, we are incredibly grateful to also have Nicole Parker, a Black transgender woman who is the Transaction Florida Project Coordinator, which assists with Equality Florida's statewide transgender inclusion initiative. And she's also a stakeholder and community relations manager for the One Pulse Foundation, if you remember the Pulse nightclub nightmare that happened several years ago. Right. So these are a parent of a transgender child, a woman who's a transgender woman who is also black, who works in that field to support others. So a lot of expertise and experience. And so we're super honored to bring you these conversations that I really don't think people get to have every day. And by the way, speaking of things you don't see or hear every day, if you're not following us on social media, please go on and follow us because we're seeing some really strange things happening in particular on Instagram, also on Facebook, when we specifically talk about race or racism, you know, versus the episode we did or the, you know, promotions and talk conversations we had on Doe and shopping consciously for women. There's some stuff that's happening with our posts that is wonky. So something's going on in social media land, please follow us. And if you want to learn and listen and spread the word, please also think about sharing our information with others, including this episode. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. I am so excited to bring our two guests on to the show today. Will you both please introduce yourselves? Sure. So my name is Jamie Jara. I use uh, she, her pronouns. I live in Florida with my husband of 16 years, Dennis. We were both born in, raised in New York, but we've been living in Florida for 15 years now. 
We have three kids. Our sons, Jaden, 14, Jackson is 12. They're both cisgender. And our youngest kiddo, Dempsey, is about to turn nine right after Thanksgiving, and she is transgender. For most of my life, my professional career has been in retail luxury management. But in recent years, I have decided to step away from the corporate world and change directions into secondary education. I feel this is a better fit for me personally because it's more fulfilling and it gives me a greater opportunity to have more impact in the community, particularly with LGBTQ youth. Just in time for the, you know, COVID pandemic to shut down and jack up the whole schooling system. <laughs> so <laughs> I know I was supposed to start teaching and yeah, all three of my kids are home distance learning. So it's really not possible for me to be, you know, helping them with their schoolwork and then at the same time teaching. So I had to kind of put that on hold for a few more months. Hopefully I'll get back into it in the new year. Well, hi everyone. Um, my name is Nicole Parker pronoun she, her, hers. My full-time job, I am the Director of Stakeholder and Community Relations for the One Pulse Foundation, and I also am a Project Coordinator for Equality Florida, which is a statewide LGBTQ advocacy agency. I transitioned about nine years ago, so back in that time, the information really wasn't there, so I was winging it. I've kind of gone through the whole process where in the beginning, me taking hormones were black market hormones. I literally just got them off of a girl who I knew had them and I didn't really know what I was taking. And so that's kind of where my advocacy began. Through my transition, I started to realize the disparities that trans individuals face and how a lot of us felt stuck. And as time went on, now that I see in 2020, there's so much information, there's so much you know, representation and representation is so important. I wasn't able to look on TV or look on the news and see trans folks that were doing positive things in the community, that were changing the community. So I'm just excited to see kind of where we're going. Of course, we have a lot of work to do as a community, but I will say that I think things are getting a bit better definitely than they were nine years ago. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, and I just want to put this in context. When you said you started taking hormones, like, is it really just within the last decade that more hormones have become available? Like what has been the greater timeline for these conversations, you know, where we, we've moved from, where people are physically able to make that transition more regularly? Yeah, I think it was more access to resources. So initially I came out of the closet at 15 and I'll never forget my mom saw my MySpace and it said, bye, you know, we all come out as bi first. It's so much easier. And she asked me, she goes, are you bi or do you want to be a girl? And I remember I froze and I'm like, oh no, no. I'm bi. And I sometimes think back, if I would have said something at 15, how my life would have been different. But fast forward to 19 years old, I was already working as a woman. I mean, I had to, at that time, once again, there wasn't much information. So while back then I was upset with my parents for not understanding, now that I'm older, I realize that all the stuff that I know now, nobody really knew back then. So I ended up leaving my house and the individuals who were helping me transition, they were like, this is how you get hormones. This is how you do things. Back in the day when you went to a doctor, they wouldn't give you hormones until you were seeing a therapist for a long period of time. And think about it. I was 19. I couldn't pay out of pocket to see a therapist consistently in order to get hormones. And for me, it was kind of a life or death situation. I was either going to transition or I wouldn't be alive. And I know that sounds a little intense, but that is how serious gender identity is. It's very hard for people really to understand what it's like to be born in the wrong body. Most people are born in their bodies, get used to it, and that's the life that they live. But when you're trans, you outwardly look a certain way, but inside you feel differently. So I remember being in grade school and they would separate the boys and the girls and go play sports. And I'm like, why am I not with the girls? You know, I couldn't really understand that in my head. And I know a lot of people are thinking, you know, who did something to you? Who made you think that you're a woman? And I'm like, Nobody. That was literally me. 
you know, and as time went on and as I got more comfortable in my skin, I started to realize that. And that's the beauty about youth nowadays is that you have parents like Jamie who are allowing their kids to be themselves at an early age. I only wish I could have been. And seeing that, you know, so much more common now is amazing because when you know, you know. And I know people like to say the phase thing. Oh, my kid's going through a phase. I mean, they're very well, baby, some kids who do that. But for the majority, nobody's going to pick a avenue and a life that is going to cause them so much struggle and, and potential harm and all of these things. You know, to be trans, we kind of accept that danger could be heading our way, but we do it anyways. So I think that's kind of like a tell-all to how important it is to us and how real it is. I'm so grateful because, you know, the main purpose of this conversation is opening up the realities of transgender living. And so many times people are resistant or we tiptoe around this conversation. And I think in your case too, when we layer race on top of that, this is a really important conversation that has a lot of different challenges to it too, in terms of the realities of what life is like. So, you know, you just mentioned, Nicole, when you were a kid and you saw the kids like splitting into you know, male, female, like, I don't even know how to ask this question, like, because I think it's sort of silly. In the same way, when you ask people, like, when did you know you were attracted to, when, when we people talk to, like, in terms of the sexuality, like, when did you know you were attracted to a woman, like, to the same gender? And you're like, well, when did you know you were attracted to the opposite? Like, you just know. Is it similar to that? You just knew from the time you were little but didn't have the words? Can you explain sort of how, in a child's mind, that you become aware of it. And I would love to then also ask Jamie, like from a parenting perspective, what did she notice too? So I didn't think anything was different about me. I just started to realize society was treating me differently. So I remember the story vividly where I was at a friend's house and she painted my pinky nail clear. And I know when you hear that, you're like, what is that? But for me, I was like, oh my goodness, you know what I mean? I finally got my nail painted and I went to go show my mom and my mom's like, you know, boys don't do that. And in my head, I'm like, I know that I'm not a boy. So for me as a kid, I didn't understand that anything was different with me. As time went on and I started to get bullied, they're like, why are you walking like that? Why do you talk like that? Why are you so feminine? That's when I started to internalize and realize, oh, wait, maybe I'm doing things wrong. Maybe I'm supposed to be a different way. So then I would try sports and I would try all of these things. And it just personally wasn't for me. I was always super, super feminine. And I like to tell people the story about, so when a fetus is in the womb, it always starts out as a female. And then as you know, hormones go on and things like that, it either progresses into a male or stays a female. In our case of being trans, our body may have gone, like for instance, male to female, our body went to male, but my mind stayed female. So when I tell people that, that's kind of a better understanding for them. And they're like, oh, I get it. Because when talking to people, they're like, you think like a woman, you talk like a woman. I'm like, I am one. I don't know what to tell you. You know, my body may be different, but it's all about the soul. I truly believe that this is just a vessel. This is us having our human experience. And I just so happen to be put into a different body. So yeah, like as a child, I can't really say I knew I was different until society started to treat me differently. Jamie, when we chatted in the spring, you also said that it was that mismatch between how your daughter was like, the pressures of society, shall we say, like when she had to go to school and change out of these outfits. And, you know, can you talk to us about your experience watching your child grapple with that? Yes. I mean, for us, it was kind of an early journey. I mean, Dempsey, when she was born, I mean, they handed her to us and, you know, they said, here, here's your son. And I was like, okay, great. I have three sons now, you know, but by the time Dempsey was, I would say 18 months old, her behavior and expression were completely feminine. I mean, 
at the time, you know, it was considered gender nonconforming. So, you know, just that her behavior or the, what she preferred didn't conform to traditional and society expectations. And that's not really that rare for many children. I mean, you'll see girls playing with trucks or boys playing with dolls occasionally. The difference with Dempsey is that she was consistent, persistent, and insistent on only choosing feminine things to play with, like princesses or wearing sparkly dresses. And I guess I'll add that's important that we didn't have any of these things readily available in our home because our two older boys didn't play with any of these things or weren't interested in this. So her physical exposure to these things were limited to, I would say, Disney movies, playtime at preschool. She only played with girls in preschool. Her happiest time was, you know, being in dress up as Princess Elsa with a pair of, you know, pajama pants upside down on her head with these legs coming down like, you know, she was, you know, long braids. And we weren't really overly concerned at the time. I mean, we're pretty progressive. We thought maybe Dempsey would, you know, end up in her adolescence, you know, identifying as gay. Um, we thought at the time maybe it was a phase. But phases, I mean, they're defined as six months or less. And this was something that Dempsey just, she never outgrew. And then the more years passed, she was just more and more insistent that, you know, I'm a girl and I don't understand why you're treating me like a boy. We allowed her to, you know, dress up at home and play with the toys that she wanted. We bought her things. But when we, you know, we put her out in the world, at, you know, preschool and things like that, you know, we forced her into polos and, you know, the society norms of boyhood. And it wasn't so much that we were, you know, trying to suppress her, but just we were trying to protect her from the world because, I mean, people are cruel. And we were living in Miami at the time and it's very Hispanic and it's very like macho, you know, centric ideas. And just, I mean, thinking about it now, it's like overwhelming because I still, I mean, to this day, I mean, that was years ago and I still feel so guilty of like depriving my kid of just like the simple joy of just being herself. I mean, when we used to take her to the barber, we had to physically like restrain her. I mean, imagine like having to hold your child down to cut her hair. And I mean, she would just have catastrophic meltdowns. She would throw herself on the floor if she couldn't leave the house in a skirt. It was just, it was agony. And she was just, I mean, she was such a bright and energetic kid. And she by four was just like, withdrawn, completely distraught, sullen, and we needed help. So we started looking for different support groups. We stumbled on PFLAG, which was amazing. We had another group, Different Drummer, that quite literally saved our lives. They helped us find the resources. They helped us find a therapist. I started digging around and poking through to find groups of moms that could help me because, again, I am not transgender. And so, you know, three or four identified as female. And that, you know, I wasn't really sure. And I, you know, I didn't want to make any mistakes. So I found this another great group, the Mama Dragons, which it's all moms with LGBTQ kids that, you know, they're there for fellowship and support and community. And I felt like, wow, like I found my people. And so, you know, basically, at, I think she was about five after, you know, a few months of therapy, like play therapy, she came to us and said, you know, mommy, daddy, I am a girl in my brain and in my heart. And I want to be called she and her. I'm not your son. I'm your daughter. And that kind of was the light switch that, you know, changed everything like almost immediately. And we knew it was time that like she had to socially transition and we were going to find any, you know, outlets and resources we could to help her do that. That's amazing. And I feel like I hear the power of that community and that advocacy and the curiosity you had enough to look out for your child to do the research and find the groups and, and all of that. But there's a lot of people, I think, who push back and be like, but you made your child do that, right? Like, what has been some of the pushback that you have gotten 
both through that process and to this day? Pushback. Let's see. Okay, so once we started with Dempsey's transition, it kind of went really quickly. We changed pronouns. Social transition is changing things like hair, style, clothing, legal things like name and gender markers, but there's no medical intervention. I mean, because keep in mind that she was you know, five years old. There is no medical intervention at that point. We let her grow out her hair. She went through a painful stage. Gosh, I remember that her hair was just so short. And we were like putting these little tiny pigtails, like they were like this big, they're so tiny and telling her that Princess Diana had this super cool short hair. You know, pronouns for us were really hard at first. For me specifically, it was hard because I would, for me, the memories of Dempsey when, you know, when she was going by he pronouns were cemented in my brain that way. So I had to learn to like relearn that she was never he and you just couldn't tell us at that point. I think the hardest pushback we got was when we did seek out, you know, medical doctors and to be told, I mean, we had a pediatrician in Miami that told us that, you know, transgender people, that it's not a legitimate thing and that, you know, we were freaks and, you know, that, you know, we needed to just, you know, stop, you know, indulging our child. I mean, I remember she saying, you can't indulge your child in this. Um, You're making your kid this way. And for me, it's like, well, I literally cannot get my kids to eat their vegetables, let alone change genders. Like this is not something that I can make my kid do. You know, it's not anything that I could ever say or push on her that would ever change who she is. And it's sad when you deal with pushback from especially the medical community, which unfortunately is common, because I mean, when we're talking about young children, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they have guidelines, they've issued guidelines for affirming care of trans kids. And they have put forth, you know, set, you know, guidelines that say, look, children, you know, they learn their gender identity, you know, three and four years old. I mean, that young, I mean, it's very difficult, especially when you're dealing with professionals that you're supposed to trust. And, you know, they make you feel horrible and they don't want to treat you and you just want to, you know, help your kid. I love this conversation because it stirs up like so many emotions as I'm listening to both of you talk, you know, like anger at the doctors and, you know, people who are telling you that there's something wrong here inherently. But so thankful that you both are so open about sharing, you know, how this journey has been as a parent or Nicole as an individual who is trying to process everything that's happening and process, you know, how the outside world as well is sort of viewing how you are and trying not to let that impact your view of self as well. You know, and speaking of pushback in the outside world, one of the things that I'd love to talk about are, you know, what, and being a lawyer, like I'm really precise about terminology at times, right? So I I want to know, you know, what are the words that people should be using to refer to transgender people? And, you know, I don't want to get too far into the offensive language, but I know that there's been a lot of misconceptions around how do we refer to people? So I'd love for you both to talk about that a little bit. I can say for me, I see a lot of, you know, the word that it actually, I'm not trans, but it's offensive to me is the word transgendered. You wouldn't call, you know, for example, Ellen, you know, lesbian or Elton John gay. It's not an adjective and it's used often that way, usually as a derogatory term. And so, I mean, I'm sure Nicole can probably speak more to things that are offensive, but I mean, for me, that's always an issue. Um, When I hear that, I try to correct people always. And for me, pronoun uses is a big one. I feel like in an effort to normalize the use of pronouns, it should be included on, you know, email signatures when you're introducing yourself in any group, because I mean, you don't know if someone 
may be struggling or, you know, and, and you can't make assumptions just on visual cues that, you know, someone might go by they, them, and I don't know that unless I ask them or they say, they share. So that I think is important. And I mean, the only other thing I can add to that as far as how Dempsey, sometimes it's uncomfortable for her is a lot of times people will ask, well, so you used to be a boy. And that's like, no, she didn't used to be a boy. And she always was a girl. And then I also find that people often, I mean, in Dempsey's case, she didn't change her name, she kept her name. But people often ask, well, what's your birth name or your dead name, as it's referred to in the transgender community. And that's so offensive. And it's hurtful. And it's not anybody's business, I think. And like I said, Nicole probably can speak to more of these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And really quick, I want to piggyback on what Jamie said with the medical providers. Something that I'm still going through in 2020, I am 26 days out from my gender confirmation surgery and insurance denied my surgery twice for the simple fact that they wanted one sentence to know that I've either worked as a woman for a year, volunteered or been in school. And I sit back and I'm thinking, so what about the folks that can't volunteer, aren't in school and don't have a job? They just can't have this surgery? And it's 2020 and we're still going through that. So needless to say, I was able to get that added into my psychologist letter, but I can imagine how many people get the denial letter like I got where they said, this isn't medically necessary, I'm sorry, and just give up. So those struggles are still happening to this day with medical providers because they're still thinking that we need to know for sure, for sure, that this is something that you want to do. And someone like me, I'm 27 years old, I'm not going to go through the surgery if that's not something I wanted to do, you know? So the medical piece is really, really difficult. And I hope those guidelines do change sometime in the future because it really does hinder a lot of people from being their authentic selves. But as far as terminology, um, there's so many. So I also like to tell people, like when it comes to non-binary and those pronouns, for a lot of people, it's difficult to use the pronouns they, them, and their, because we were kind of taught that if you say, oh, them, it's kind of dismissive. However, for these individuals, they feel that they're not she or he, and gender is fluid, so they kind of go by they, them, or their. And I also speak in the context of the word like tranny or the word transvestite. Now, the word transvestite was an appropriate term in the 90s, and I also have to say that in many presentations because older folks will tell me you know, some that are in their 60s and 70s will say, oh, but that was the word transvestite back in the day. And I say, I do understand that, but times have changed. Now that is extremely offensive and it has been used throughout the years as a derogatory term. Like Jamie said, the dead name. I mean, I'm asked that all the time and I'm like, why does that matter? You know, what does it matter what my name was previously? And also the phrase, wow, you look just like a woman. Thanks. You know what I mean? Thank you. I guess that's great. You know, and in our community, there's this thing called passing and I hate that word. I hate the word passable, but it is a thing. And for those who don't know what that means, that's someone who is trans who passes as the gender they are presenting as. And the issue with that is, is that it makes it seem like being passable is the right way. And it's not, you know, living your authentic self is the right way. For me, a lot of people have asked me, and I'm also offended by this as well. They're like, you pass so much. Why don't you just like leave the advocacy and go live life like a woman? And I'm like, okay, first of all, I use my voice for those who can't advocate for themselves, first and foremost. And number two, I use my privilege. I have a privilege where I can go into spaces that people may not have known and I tell them my story and it may change their minds. So for me, I decide to use that. Of course, I can go and live life and not tell anybody, but would I really be living authentically? And to me, that's a no. So I'm open about my gender identity and I do that to help people for the simple fact that I didn't have that when I was growing up. I didn't know who to look for. Um, Laverne Cox had just got casted into Orange is, 
knew black and it was just like, oh, we, you know, casted a trans person, but it wasn't anything big. There wasn't anything, you know, research wise and all that was still coming out back then. So I didn't have the representation that we have now. So I just try to do what I can to be able to pass that forward because all of our, as we call them, transcestors, you know, went and rioted for us and did all these things so that I would have the right and Dempsey would have the right to live our authentic lives. So I feel like it's up to me to, you know, move that needle forward and do the best that I can. But terminology wise, there's so many things. And I don't want to get too crude because it really just kind of goes left from here. Once we leave like training and transvestite, it gets really, really nasty. But I know like those are kind of the words that probably most viewers hear and maybe they didn't know were derogatory and they really are. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, you mentioned being privileged and being able to speak up for others, but I know that there's also speaking of privilege, you know, one thing Jamie had said was that my daughter is privileged because she is a, like a pretty white girl. And I want to ask, because from my understanding, it is even more difficult to be a transgender black woman or transgender black individual, you know, what pressures are is the Black community under, both within the community and from outside in this realm? It's immense pressure. So there's so many layers that come to it. So I'm multiracial, I'm half Black, and then my mom's Puerto Rican and Italian. So, you know, you go, you pick one, and they all somewhere have issues with me. But being in the Black community, first and foremost, I want to speak on mental health. So mental health is shunned upon. Going to a counselor is shunned upon. In communities of color, it's the business stays in the family. You don't talk to people about things. And I think that is the toxic cycle that we have in communities of color where nobody wants to go and express their feelings. They just hold it in and then it's passed on to the next generation. This may be a little bit crude, but I want to be honest. In in the Black community especially, I still at 27 years old cannot figure out why in the family, when there's somebody trans, we're looked at as the devil. We're looked at as extra. Why are you doing so much? But the uncle that touched 10 of the kids or done anything inappropriate. Oh, that's nothing. Oh, he's sick, honey. You know, there's something wrong with him. But when it comes to me being trans, it's like, oh, you know, I don't know why you're doing this. And, you know, you're going too far and the devil must have you. It's this very backwards view of trans people in the black community. And I've never really been able to figure that part out just because I'm like, really? You know what I mean? Like if you sit, I'm just living my authentic life. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm just living my life. And then there's individuals in families who hurt generations of people and it's just brushed under the rug. And then, you know, access to resources. Being a Black trans woman, I see the amount of Black trans women killed every single day. And it is mortifying. You know what I mean? I think people assume if a trans woman is killed, oh, she tricked the guy. Really? So that gives that, you know, gives him clearance to kill me, you know? And while I don't agree with that, I'm open about who I am. Not everybody is, and that's your own prerogative, but that doesn't give you you know, a check mark to kill somebody. And it's just the layers kind of go on and on with that access to resources. You know, Black trans women, people don't realize that, oh, it's 2020, you can get a job. Well, if you're a trans woman that, say, doesn't pass, I've seen it before. You go in for job interviews, the minute they see you, they judge you. And it's like, thank you for your time. And they leave. I've gone on job interviews in the beginning of my transition because in the beginning, nobody looks the way that they want. I had to get my laser, I had to grow my hair out. I had to learn makeup let my hormones set in, you know what I mean? So, but that doesn't mean my stomach stopped being hungry. I had to make money. I had to eat. And that's, I would go on job interviews. And even if they didn't know, they're like, oh, can we see your identification or something? Before I had my identification changed, they saw that in there and that male name. And they're like, okay, we'll give you a call and would never call back. 
And as time went on, I still had to work. So inevitably I fell into sex work. Sex work is something that a lot of trans individuals find themselves having to do because at the end of the day, the bills still come, you still have to eat and you still need shelter over your head. And, you know, there's a lot of people judge about sex work and how could you do that? And this, this, and that. When you're sitting and you haven't eaten for a couple of days, you'll do pretty much about anything to get some money to eat, you know? And I just wish that the stigma of sex work went down a bit because it's not something a lot of people choose. You know, the trauma that comes from it, I'm still in counseling to this day. And that was six years plus ago. And I still deal with, I got diagnosed with PTSD from that. You know, there's so many situations that happen, whether it's getting beat up, getting raped, getting robbed. I can go down the list of things that happen to trans women and trans men, just trans people in general. And I think just as a society, we have to just be a little bit more open to the experiences of one another and really try to realize why does this individual do this versus judging them for doing it. That's such a good point about really seeing the humanity. It's something we talk about a lot in the show. And so many people want to throw a label on something and then be like, okay, this fits neatly into this box. And therefore I know how to handle it versus taking the time to hear someone's story, to understand their humanity and what they've gone through and what their next step might be, you know? So I really appreciate you sharing that. And I mean, some of those stats just to jump forward a little bit, like there's a huge number. I mean, Jamie, you were the one who quoted some of these to me last time we chatted too, but there was like, I think 40% of homeless children are LGBTQ, 58% of trans kids in unsupportive households die by suicide versus 4% in supportive homes. These are huge tolls that are being taken on individuals because going back to that idea of supportive groups and families, like that seems to be missing. Honestly, I was told in the beginning of my transition, you're lucky if you make it to 35. Like us trans women, we don't make it past 35. So live your life now. Imagine being 19 and told, well, you know, you only got a couple more years left. That took a toll on my mental. I'm like, oh my God, you know, I have to do everything I want to do in life. And now I'm realizing that now there's resources. Now there's access to healthcare. Now there's ways to extend the life of trans um, individuals. But back in the 80s and 90s, Trans women, you know, passing away at 35, 36, 37 was a common thing and it wasn't looked at twice. And it's like, as a society, I get it. People have their own religious views and all of that, but let's take all of that aside and look at each other as human. We all bleed red. We all have to breathe. We all have to eat. You know, at what point are we just going to realize however you live your life is how you live your life, but I care about you as a human? I think that mental health piece is something that it, you know, I feel like we haven't seen a lot of coverage on it, really. And, you know, and it's such an in both of what you are saying, you know, it's such a crucial part of all of this between the just the everyday trauma that happens by virtue of how people react and what you're being told and what you need to do just to survive, basically, as living your authentic self, you know, and I think that speaks to also, you know, how important intersectionality is here when we think about all of the different components of who we are and who that authentic self is. Because I think along with labeling, we like to divide things into a clearly labeled category. And so, and when you think about the issues that transcend and go across all of those categories, oof, it's just another reminder and of the need for mental health. And, you know, I think about what's happening very recently legally with how they're trying to remove, you know, and carve out transgender rights, you know, from the Affordable Care Act and, and what is happening. And it's shocking because, Nicole, like you were mentioning in 2020, these are still the barriers 
to transitioning and to being your authentic self. And we are still not in that position. And now we're actually trying to actively remove what little protection and help there is. So I just, I find that so appalling, but people aren't really, you know, there's, it seems to be still sort of a lack of focus, a lack of understanding around all of the components of this. I can also mention that, I mean, we're, I mean, I'm in the state of Florida and I mean, we were just, Dempsey and I together, we're just up with Equality Florida in January. I, it was like the real, the last outing we were actually in um, or out before COVID and we were there lobbying. I mean, I was there with my eight-year-old child lobbying against this horrific anti-trans child youth bill that they were trying to pass off as protecting these children because their parents are abusing them by giving them all these drugs and, you know, performing surgeries on them, which was so ridiculous. And it was such a farce from, you know, what it actually is. And it's sad. I mean, my kid is only eight and she already knows that she is different. She knows that she isn't always going to have the same rights as other people. And it's, she's eight. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around it and I'm going to be 42 years old. I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like for an eight-year-old child to see people, grown-ups, who are, are saying, you know, you don't deserve to have rights. You don't deserve to be who you are. I mean, that's crazy. And it's disheartening. And it's agony, I mean, from my perspective as a parent. What infuriates me is, so when we think about youth, I remember all the way back in school and as long as I've been alive, say there was a kid in class who was special needs. Everybody would go ballistic if somebody made fun of them, somebody treated them any different. Teachers and administrators like, how dare you do this? God forbid the kid was LGBTQ or trans. Oh, you know, that's different. Oh, they're doing too much. Why is that any different? You know what I mean? This is just someone who doesn't fit the norm, but they should be treated the same as well. And I remember I cried like a baby when the military ban went through because all I could think about is these kids who... Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut and all of these things. Imagine seeing the president, which you don't really understand, removing a whole job from a group of people, you know, and it's like, oh, mom, I wanted to go in the military, but I guess I can't. That I couldn't grasp that in my head, how that was okay to pass. Well, I mean, we know who he is. So clearly that was how that went. But, you know, I couldn't in my mind understand what kids are thinking where they're writing in school, what do you want to be? And I want to be, you know, in the army or a Marine or something like that. And then this individual is like, oh, but wait, I'm trans. I don't think I can do that. It hurt my heart so much because I felt like we were like in 1970, 1980 again, where it was like trans people at the bottom of the barrel and we didn't receive anything, you know? And it's just, it's sad that we are so far and so we've progressed so much with technology and everything that we're still removing jobs and things from a group of people. And I also think to add on to that in the school situations, I mean, it's still a problem in schools as well. I mean, we don't have representation in books, in the histories that my kids are learning about in school. They don't get to see any or hear any stories of trans people or, and it's completely whitewashed and everything of value that for me, I want my kids to learn and to know is taken away. It's never added. And when you try, for example, we put age appropriate books on gender identity on the principal's desk. I had, they were all approved from, you know, the human rights campaign. They sat there the entire school year and they were returned to me at the end of the year and no one had read them, you know, because, oh, we will accept you. We'll accommodate you because they don't want parents like me who have a big mouth to like make waves at the school. But at the same time, they don't want any other parents to know they have a trans kid at their school because, oh no, like they don't want the pushback from other parents. So it's very frustrating. 
It's interesting you say that because I think race is now more openly discussed. People in the public school systems are increasingly bringing books with diverse characters into the school, that sort of stuff. But I do feel like probably because of what you mean, the religious connotation, people are still very much like, no, we don't discuss that. You know, we're already having a hard time discussing slavery. How can we possibly talk about this population of people that seems like, according to the religious books, is not acceptable? But that is, I would love to get those names of the gender affirming books because we would like to add them to our list. So please send me those. I would really appreciate it. I will do. Going back to the schools for a second then, what is it like having to, I feel like you had to fight to get your daughter to be able to use the bathroom, right? Like the big bathroom, the Target bathroom issue was all over the news. Maybe it was a year ago. I'm in time warp right now, but like, what is that like, you know, from both a parent perspective and then when, Nicole, did you know that you were comfortable walking into a woman's bathroom? For me, as a parent perspective, it's very hard because, I mean, it requires me and my husband to often have conversations that are very uncomfortable with people who are very ignorant on the topic. And, you know, usually the two experiences we've had with the bathrooms before I could even explain anything other than my child is trans and do you know anything about trans children, which was replied to as no by a principal, then the very first question she had was, well, what bathroom does your kid use? And it's like, well, my kid goes to the bathroom. They use the restroom to go to the bathroom. They're not doing anything else in there. And if anything, it's more of a safety issue for my child from other children than it would be for my kid doing anything to anyone else. And, you know, We've been lucky in regards to, you know, when Dempsey was in kindergarten and first grade, the school situation there were that the, each classroom had its own unisex stall. So that wasn't an issue in the early years. I mean, like I said, we moved up to Orlando from Miami about a year ago, and she started a new school district here. And they did ask, what bathroom does she use? And I said, she uses the girls' room. And that's not something we're going to budge on. And, you know, they were actually fine with it. But I also think it kind of speaks to kind of appearance. It speaks to what Nicole was saying, you know, in regards to, you know, the quote unquote passing. I mean, if you look at my child, she doesn't have to say that she's trans because no one knows that she is. And so actually the superintendent of the school said, well, it would look really weird if she was going into the boys' bathroom. And I'm like, well, she wouldn't go into the boys' bathroom. But I feel like a lot of it, it's much harder in regards when you're talking about middle school and high school with teenagers and things like that, with the parents really having to fight. And that's where you're seeing, you know, Gavin Grimm and these cases that are, you know, being, you know, decided. For Dempsey, like, she's small, she's young. And so they're usually the school's take on it is your kid can kind of do what bathroom she wants to go to is fine, but we don't want to tell anybody else. We don't want to, you know, advertise that we have a trans kid here. And in both instances, the two different schools that she has been in, both in Miami and here in outside of Orlando, she is the only openly trans kid, at least to the staff. Like I said, she tells people who she trusts that she's trans, but the staff at the school does know. They are aware. For me, I transitioned out of school, but public restrooms, I don't think a lot of people realize this. There's so many trans people who will hold it and not use a public restroom at all to the point that they have to go to the doctor because they get UTIs and things like that. That's how scared they are. I'll never forget, I was working for a mental health agency and I went into the restroom and there was the same woman who always had such an issue with me. And she went down to the property manager to complain. And the property manager came up to my boss and was like, oh, I'm hearing that there's a male that uses the female restroom. And my boss comes walking out like, excuse me, you know what I mean? That's who you're speaking to. And the property manager was like, 
didn't realize, I guess the woman said, there's a man in the bathroom referring to me. And then the property manager is like, wait, what? Didn't understand the whole trans thing or stuff like that. It took me, so if I transitioned at 19, I probably started using public restrooms like 22, honestly. I would just wait to go home or I wouldn't go spaces that were too far or I would go find like a family restroom or something just because of how uncomfortable people made me feel early on. And that is the experience of a lot of people. And when you think about it, I have this debate now all the time and they're like, oh, you can go in the restroom and it it shouldn't matter. Nobody would know. I'm like, it's been nine years for me. That wasn't the case for me year one, year two, year three. And I always raise the question. They're like, so why don't you use the male bathroom? I said, imagine me walking in a men's bathroom. And they're like, oh, okay. I was like, you don't think I would either get beat up? Something would happen to me. They're like, what is going on here? Ma'am, you're in the wrong restroom. That happened to me at a local mall. So the food court's in the middle and both bathrooms are to the side. And I have social anxiety. So I forgot, you know, and I walked straight into the men's bathroom and I'm like, oh, and they're like, ma'am, ma'am, you're in the wrong bathroom. Now that happened to me, but I had friends who did that or whatever. And they're like, you know, what the F what's going on here? Blah, 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 blah everybody's experience is different. And the argument, I really, I just don't understand how they assume that we're going to go in and do something negative, like hurt their wives, hurt their kids. It's like, I just want to use the restroom. You know, I don't care what's going on over there. Let me use the restroom, wash my hands and leave, you know, but I think people will just find anything to make a big stink out of it. And the bathroom thing, just to me, I never really understood. I'm like, let's time how long you're in the bathroom. What, max five, 10 minutes? Like, really? You know what I mean? Is this what we're going to create a big issue about? But that's society for you. I love that you said that because I think about, you know, when anyone is out and trying to use a public restroom, right? It's not, you were going in there for one purpose, you're, you know, and you're coming out and you're not like, I know I purposely am not lingering and, you know, that restroom. Okay. So like I'm in there and I'm telling my kids to not touch anything. Yeah. So I completely agree that it's, you know, it's something to hold up that people will hold up, you know, as a differentiator and an easy way to create that label perhaps. Well, and isn't it interesting that that becomes the same, like, I feel like it ties into this idea of like, we all should be afraid of everything in this country. And especially about people who don't live a life that we particularly understand because of our own lived experience like, I think the hitch is that so many people don't understand that wherever on the spectrum, like LGBTQ, you know, whether you are lesbian or gay and that's about sexuality versus identity on the transgender side of things, it's like, it's not a choice. It just is. And so people who still live in this idea that you can choose that part of yourself versus it being assigned are probably the ones who are questioning things like, what bathroom do you want to use? Or, you know, you're making your kid be this way. When if you understand that this is simply the reality that human beings are born looking and identifying in so many different ways, and there's a huge beauty in all of it, it's a very, very different mindset going into these conversations, I think, or the pushback that you get for bathrooms or for whatever. It's true. It's like, I personally, and not everybody likes this, but I will go to town and go to bat with people who don't agree with me because to me, it's like, I want to hear your perspective. You hear mine. As long as we can have a healthy debate, I'm here for it. And I also, I often say, I said, so when you think about your family, think about your mother, father, brothers, sisters, cousins, do you want them to be genuinely happy? Everybody says, yes. I said, okay, so take me for instance. Would you rather me live authentically and maybe get pushback or would you have rathered me stay male, get married, 
have kids, have no interest in this woman, be so disconnected, but just do this so we, I can fit into the box. Which one? Would you rather me be depressed my whole life just to fit in with my family or live authentically and maybe get pushed back from society? And a lot of them sit back and they're like, oh, I don't think of it that way. I'm like, are you really willing to tell somebody that you love, somebody that's in your family that I need you to just suppress that part of you and go, you know what I mean? And do what's supposed to be done. You know, we don't live in those times anymore. There was a time where people were like, yes, you know what I mean? I don't care what it is. I need you to fit in. But I think now it's just about being happy, living authentically, because everybody does. You know what I mean? What is the difference of somebody being in a relationship for years, realizing that they're not happy and moving on and getting married again? They get judged the same way. You know what I mean? Oh, you did this. You left this. At some point, I had to realize I was going to be judged regardless. So if I'm going to be judged, at least I want to go to sleep knowing I'm comfortable in my body. I want to go back to sort of schools and history for a second, too, because, you know, Jamie, what you said about sort of the whitewashing of history, well, and Sarah and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast in various ways. You know, when we're, I think back to the summer and we had the, you know, 51st anniversary of the Stonewall riots. And depending on the account that you read, like the role of Marsha Johnson is sort of out of it. You know, I read a whole bunch of different accounts and some of the accounts had her, you know, featured in it. And some of the accounts basically didn't say anything at all. So, you know, how do you see that sort of the portrayal of history or sort of the erasure of trans individuals from history, you know, playing out? And, you know, I guess this goes back to sort of the intersectionality issue again, and also sort of the role of the trans individual in the LGBTQ community. Well, before I know Nicole has probably plenty of stuff to say on this. For me, I just want to say that Marsha Pate No Mind Johnson is a huge hero in our house. And so we make sure that our children and all three of them are aware of her existence, her life, the legacy that she left. And, you know, Stonewall is huge for LGBTQ and it is often, you know, removed or maybe sidelined that, you know, she was a huge part of it, if not the factor that started it all. So it definitely shouldn't be removed and She's the hero. She's our hero. She's Dempsey's hero. We are so bummed that Pride is not happening in Orlando this year because Dempsey always has a new sign and her sign was going to be Marsha P. Johnson is my hero. That was her sign this year. So yes, I'm sure Nicole could speak more to it. You know, the erasure of trans people always has happened. I always say in in the acronym LGBTQ, the T is silent. Lesbians, gay, bisexual individuals tend to not fight for trans rights, tend to I think people would be surprised that the most pushback I've really received was from gay men, you know, versus the straight world. You know, gay men have a very negative outlook on trans folks. And I don't know where that stems from. If you haven't seen it, the show Pose is incredible. But there is a one scene where she goes into a gay bar and they're like, what are you doing here? This place is not for you. And I don't think people understood that back then trans women walking into a gay bar, you would think like now you see, you know, drag queens and things like that. No, that's not how it was. Trans women were looked at as clowns. Trans women were looked at as going too far. And that's just kind of what happens with society. And then when it comes to Marsha and Sylvia, they tend to get erased from it. Even the movie remake of Stonewall everybody in the riot was white. And I was confused. I'm like, uh, we're making a movie here. You know what I mean? You have a chance to really cast whoever you want and really make it look as authentic as it was. And the individual who threw the brick was a gay white male. And that's not how history remembers it from what I know, you know? So it's something that we fight about a lot because 
regardless of what it is, whether it's marriage equality, anything like that, trans women are at the front fighting for rights of LGBTQ people. But when it comes to the erasure of trans folks or the erasure of rights for trans folks, a lot of the time, the rest of the community is silent. And it really does, me personally, hurts my feelings, gets me infuriated because just because I talk on trans rights a lot now, my whole life has been LGBTQ people fighting for LGBTQ people. And if I'm going to show up for a rally for all people, then I expect a rally in behalf of trans folks that all people show up for us as well. I appreciate that. And I'm going to admit, I didn't realize that the pride parades were centered around the date of the Stonewall riots. Is like I had no idea that that was why that date happened. And just so for people who are listening, I mean, my understanding, and you three are more informed on this than I am, but like it was the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village where basically it was like the first time that there was a massive uprising to fight for LGBTQ rights and to be able to have a gay bar or, you know, trans identities, or at that point they were called transvestites, but right, like these people it was like the first time that that was like an identity. Well, I think it was also, it should be said that it was an uprising against the police brutality that was occurring, you know, in these bars were basically were the only sanctuary for LGBTQ members. And I mean, they were, you know, fighting against the police brutality that was constant and and a common occurrence. Yeah, they would be, these bars would be raided. The cops would wait outside, LGBTQ people are walking out, arrest them, do anything that they wanted to do to them just because they were LGBTQ. And this particular night, um, I don't know if the alcohol was flowing, I don't know if, if the juju was good in the air, but people weren't having it. And this was the first uprising, and then that's when the gay rights movement began. And then that's when you saw the first gay pride, and things started to kind of go from that. But it really was the way that police were picking on people and stuff in two years Yes, two years back was the 50th anniversary and the One Pulse Foundation, we had the opportunity to go up there and I get chills now. I'll never forget, there was a couple sitting to the left of me and I heard them speaking and they're like, we were here when that riot happened. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And they're sitting here crying, looking at thousands of people who are able to live the life that they always wanted to live. And this couple had to live in the shadows. And they said it was all worth it. They said it was scary back then. You know what I mean? Anybody would beat me up or cops would make up something to arrest us. But now we can come out and hold hands and live life how we wanted. And that's the importance of it. That's what I think youth nowadays forget. With social media and Instagram, they think that, you know, LGBTQ people have been accepted for years. And it's like, no, no, you know, little do you know, just 10, 20 years ago, these same issues were happening. So it's just amazing to see that those folks who really fought for us are able to see, even though it's still difficult, are able to see how far things have come. That's awesome to hear that. That's a cool story to see the people there. But what do you think then, speaking of like acceptance, you know, what have your stories been in terms of acceptance for who you are? I mean, Nicole, you mentioned your mom asked when you were 15, like, are you really bi? Or like, once you embraced your identity, what has made it helpful? And what are traits that you see in the communities that are supportive, that are helpful traits to have versus harmful traits in terms of acceptance of a variety of individuals? It's difficult because my mom has always been LGBTQ friendly. However, when it's your child, you, it's very different. And now that I'm older and we have these conversations, she goes, listen, the only thing I knew about trans people back in the day is that they were drag queens and sex workers. I didn't understand what it was. And I couldn't be mad at her for that because 
That's just a lack of knowledge. Now, when I was 19 and 20, I did. And there were times that I went years without talking to her because I resented her for not letting me transition earlier and stuff like that, not realizing that she was just as uneducated as I was. But I think when talking with parents and stuff and they're like, how do you do it? I say, do not be your kid's first bully. Do not. You know what I mean? I know it's difficult. And I have friends who call me and they're crying and they're like, I said I was okay with it, but I'm not. I said, well, you tell me that. You don't tell them that. You know what I mean? You talk to your friends. You talk to people who can help you through that. But your kid doesn't need to know that you're distraught that they came out as LGBTQ because they're going to internalize that. You know, and I know that's difficult and, and people think, you know, I should be able to be open with my kid and tell them everything. But little do you know, most kids remember that exact reaction of when they came out for the rest of their life. And most of the time it will change the course of it because I say family acceptance will allow you to thrive. Family rejection will send you into avenues you never thought you would go into. And then the parents are like, whoa, okay, because think about it. You grow up with your family. They reject you for being LGBTQ. You find a group of people who accept you. What if these people aren't good people? What if these people are, there's a plethora of things that they could be doing that are negative. And you fall into that because you finally found your sense of community. And I'm not ever saying that it's not going to be easy to, you know, swallow the pill that your child is LGBTQ, but try to talk to your counselor about it. Try to talk to your LGBTQ friend about it or your friend that has children and try not to tell your children exactly how you feel where it's like, I don't accept this. I don't like this. You need to marry, you know, this, this, and that, because they're going to internalize that whether you know it or not. Such good perspective to be our children's biggest cheerleaders. Speaking of children, this is a question that I have, right? People have, a, you both are very, very big advocates and are outspoken and are very public about both of your like interactions, being transgender and being the parent of a transgender child. There are a lot of people who are less public about their private life. And so the real question I have is, say a child is transgender and is in a new school and makes new friends. What are the considerations that go into, do you talk about, you know, you mentioned like, what does it matter what my dead name was? What does it matter what my past was? Do you think it's healthy? Do you tell friends about your identity or do you not? And there's got to be both pros and cons for sharing that and not sharing it. How do you navigate that space or advise people to navigate that space? I mean, for me with Dempsey, I mean, we've always told Dempsey that there's going to be some rules that may seem unfair to her, but they're there to protect her. And rules like sleeping over at someone's house if I don't know the parents. Pool parties can be extremely difficult. But for us personally, I'd rather be upfront with new families we meet if we have a connection. Like I don't just like some random person at the supermarket. No, but I would rather, you know, if I'm building a relationship with a new family or, you know, someone that we meet, I don't walk into it saying, oh, hello, this is my trans daughter. Um, she's just our daughter. But I'm always afraid of a bad a reaction with someone feeling like we, we lied or we misled them. And so that's always, it's a challenge because, you know, it's terrifying. I know that my child is in a marginalized group. I know that she will be at the receiving end of probably some hard times because she is trans. But it's the tough line. I mean, when you, I don't think I should be outing my child every time I meet a new family. So that's also an issue with me, you know, in regards to her. I'm scared for her safety. 
So, but I guess for me, we're usually upfront as if we're getting closer or if I see we, we're, you know, becoming friendly, I'm, I try to be upfront because I feel like I'd rather know that person doesn't want to be friends with us because um, we've lost friends a lot. Unfortunately, we've lost friends who don't agree. And then it's almost like so hurtful for our kids who then our friends have their own relationships with these families and then are like, why can't we see these people anymore? So I think it's just depending on the situation, but And then also too, I mean, there's not every kid wants to be identified as trans. I mean, there's some kids that we know that are trans, but they just want to be a girl. They just want to be a boy. They don't want to have that label attached. Dempsey, for now, she is happy because she wants to help. And she knows that she is in the position that she can help other families by, you know, just being herself and sharing. But I don't know what her perspective will be if she'll always want to do that. And so for now, we just follow her lead, which is why we are so very public and And, but like I said, it depends on the situation and we often, you know, I'm very visible on social media and I get trolls basically every day that are, you know, telling me I'm a pedophile or I'm abusing my child or, you know, calling CPS on us. And, you know, it's scary, but at the same time, it's like, you know what, for every crappy, ignorant, you know, comment we receive, we receive hundreds more. So it's worth it. And because being public allows me to, you know, be an advocate for my kid. And I get so many messages from parents and from other trans youth who are like, you know, I wish my mom was like this. Thank you so much for doing this, showing people that it's okay to love your kid. And I'm like, of course, it's okay to love your kid. That's your job. I mean, you're a parent, you're supposed to love your kid unconditionally. So I don't really understand. Like for me, a lot of people I often get you, Dempsey is so lucky to have you two as parents. And I appreciate that people say that to me, but I think we're the lucky ones because having Dempsey as a child has opened my eyes and to things that I never thought of in the world. And she is so brave and courageous every day. So it makes me stronger in that regards to, you know, fight for her rights, which she deserves rights just like my son do. And she doesn't have them. And I'm, for me, I won't stop fighting for them until she does. I totally 100% agree. I think it's a case by case basis. I have friends who transition at 17, had their gender confirmation surgery at 18 and never told anybody. And that's okay too. I don't, I think sometimes people are looked down upon for not being vocal about it, but that's their choice. I don't think you necessarily have to be vocal about it. Um, and, and advocate and things like that. That's a personal choice that we choose to do. But I think it is just simply about living happy, living as you and being comfortable as that. I have talked to people and they're like, oh, you know, I like you because, you know, you're willing to talk about everything. And I'm like, yeah, I'm willing, but that doesn't mean the next person is. And that's okay. You know what I mean? It's like when you go to a dinner table with 10 people who've never met, how do you know the person across from you is okay with talking about politics? Maybe they're not. So you don't touch that subject. It's the same kind of concept. You know what I mean? I think people are so amazed by the trans subject that when they get in front of you, they're like, oh my God, how'd you do it? How long did it take? What did you get done? And it's like, relax, I'm a human. How about we just, you know, connect and then maybe I'll tell you. And there are kids that I know as well too, who their parents are deathly terrified about people knowing and they don't want people to know. And that is okay. You know, sometimes I sit back and I'm like, what if I didn't do advocacy? You know, I could have kind of went stealth and that's the word stealth, living stealth where people don't know. And I could have maybe had an easier life. But for me, I have found so much love and acceptance and happiness in this journey of being open, telling people, of course, it's embarrassing to tell people that I fell into sex work. Of course, it's embarrassing to tell people that I got diagnosed with PTSD. 
But what does that do that allows somebody who is in that situation to understand, oh, it does happen to other people? Because for me in the beginning, when I was getting pushed back at my transition, I'm like, am I crazy? You know, like I didn't know another trans person. So I'm like, am I like going crazy? Do I need counseling? This, this, and that. And now, obviously now I realize that I'm not, but I can imagine so many kids whose parents don't accept them, friends don't accept them, that they feel alone in this world. So I think it's literally just how you feel and how, you know, you and your child kind of want to navigate life. I don't think there's really a wrong or right answer. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I guess along those lines, how are you feeling about your surgery and like coming up? I'm very, very excited because it's something I've always wanted, but it, you know, the insurance company has a way of like sucking the joy every single step. You know, they're like, oh, we approved you. Oh wait, it's a partial approval. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, but ultimately I'm excited. I think for me, it's like kind of like that final step while I wish I could have gotten it earlier, I'm glad that I'm 27 getting it. I was able to navigate through life and really see if this was something that I wanted. While I always knew, I think life experience also helped to cement that, to tell me, you know, this is what something that you want and something that will make you happy. And I also want to say a lot of people obsess over the surgeries with trans people and surgery is not a requirement. Some people never take one hormone, never have any surgery. I have met girls who have never taken one hormone and I would have never told, I was like, how did this happen? You know, and they just look that way naturally and same way with trans men, you know, and I think people assume, oh, you're trans. What have you gotten done? That's also offensive. It's like, really, you know, do you walk up to a woman and you're like, oh, you know, I like that. Did you get it done? It's like people, you know, it's just weird. But I also, I always remember to say that because people assume, and I was told, this is kind of the old school mentality that before I got my breast done, I'm not a woman. You're not a woman until you get your breast done. You're not a woman until you have gender confirmation surgery. And I'm like, says who? Why are you making these notches for me? You know what I mean? I always looked up to the 90s supermodel. They were this big. They had no boobs. You know what I mean? And that was fine. That was what I saw as beautiful. And that's okay. I think nowadays society has this obsession with everything being larger, you know, and it's just, it's the way that society goes, but surgeries and hormones are not necessarily needed for you to be trans. You being trans is in here and how you feel as a human. I appreciate that. But it reminds me so much of the women who have breast cancer and have mastectomies and they're told like, you're not a woman anymore. And you're like, again, it's the same thing. Like, that's not true. I mean, if you believe that women who have mastectomies are still women, then trans women, it's to me the same. You know, just how do you navigate then? Because you started taking hormones when you were in your teens. So you would have hit puberty already. And that experience would be different than the one that, Jamie, you'd be navigating with Dempsey where, you know, you start doing that to block puberty from happening. How do those experiences play out? And how do you make those choices as a parent, you know, versus someone as a, making their own decisions about this stuff? Well, and Dempsey is going to be nine. She sees her regular pediatrician once a year where they monitor for puberty. She genetically is going to be a late bloomer because I was. <laughs> so she's nowhere near anything yet. But she will eventually, you know, within the next couple of years, probably maybe three, she will have blockers to block male puberty from happening, which are reversible. Um, they're given to children that are not trans, so they're completely safe. Unfortunately for us, it depends on what insurance you have, whether they'll cover it or not. So for example, if my son was going through precocious puberty, he could get those blockers probably covered by insurance. And it depends on which insurance we have that will, you know, cover that because Dempsey needs them for being, you know, to not go through male puberty. 
And then eventually she'll have cross hormones. And, you know, like Nicole said, maybe she'll have surgery, maybe she won't. That's her decision. But yeah, I mean, the next step for us would be blockers. And that's definitely different than if you go through your assigned puberty, then that's obviously different. It's more of a, I guess the way I look at it is for Dempsey, it's more of proactive response with medications versus if you go through puberty, then it's kind of reactive, like because you have to kind of undo the things that have already happened. So it is a different experience. Yes, it is. It was difficult for me because, you know, so I was 19. So though I could never really grow a full beard and used to make fun of me for that, but I'm very thankful. (laughs) You know, I used to get kind of here and here. So being 19, I had a shadow. If I shaved, you know, there was a shadow and that always could give it away. You know, I'm 5'11", so I'm taller than a lot of people. So it was difficult for me. And I got depressed about that for a while because I'm like, I'm never going to look the way that I want to look and this, this and that. Little did I know, nine years later, I'm very happy with the way that I look, but I would have never known that before. So if I could go back, I definitely would have started earlier. However, the journey that I'm on, I think for me personally, allowed me to understand, because I'm impulsive and I, I own that, you know what I mean? So that was also the thing with my transition was, and why I waited till I was 27 to have my gender confirmation surgery, because I wanted to make sure, because I'm the type, if I, this is what I want in three weeks, I'm going to go get it, you know? And I wanted to make sure that you know, I wouldn't regret it and things like that. And that is also a thing people ask, are there people who get surgery and regret it? It happens. It does. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but it's very rare. It's very, very rare for someone to go through the process. Like for me, for gender confirmation surgery, I needed to see a consistent therapist for 18 months. I needed two letters from a psychologist and one from my doctor saying that I've been on hormones for a year. I needed to prove that I've lived this way for over a year. All of these hoops um, they make you go through. And their their reasoning is because I guess there have been people who've transitioned and regretted it. And I mean, you know, there's people who do everything and regret it. So I definitely understand that piece. But for me, if I could go back, I would have started a little earlier. Like I said, the show Pose is about the ballroom scene. I used to observe the ballroom scene from afar from age 15. So we always have our chosen family. So my gay father was very big in the ballroom scene. So it would teach me, you know, this is what this is. This is what that is. At 17, I'm going to start you on hormones. At 19, we're going to do this, this, and that. I pushed it a little farther just because, you know, he's 10 times more impulsive than me. And he wanted me to get pretty so that I could walk a ball. You know, his reason wasn't for me to be happy. He wanted me to walk a ball. But regardless, he did want me to be happy. But I just wanted to make sure that that was something that I wanted to do. However, yeah, if I could go back, I would start a little earlier, but I don't regret anything. This has been amazing, I think, to hear you know, Nicole, your journey, everything that's gone into that, Jamie, the journey that you were on with Dempsey, you know, and I just want to thank you both so much for being so open today to talking about your lived experience, because this is, I learned so much just sitting here. And I hope that in your sharing your stories, you know, for the people who are listening and maybe that person who does not feel supported, does not feel like they are able to live their authentic self because of what, you know, you guys have been discussing. I hope that that, you know, makes a difference for them as you guys are are both doing in your advocacy work. I think that's amazing. You know, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you want to share with our listeners? For me, the only thing that I would say is that we met Nicole, our family, our whole family, all five of us met Nicole at the center, Orlando, which is actually one of the oldest centers in the nation for um, promoting like the well-being and community of LGBT 
LGBTQ community. And she was facilitating a parent, well, a caregiver group for transgender kids. I think it's important to note the reason why we search out these, you know, resources is because, you know, I think it's important that Dempsey sees herself represented in a tangible way. And I also think it's important that my boys, you know, interact within the LGBTQ community, you know, as though they are allies and they are. We learn a lot from watching these incredible trans women like Nicole, you know, advocate and speak their truths. For us, it's so empowering because, you know, Dempsey looks up to Nicole. I mean, we watch everything that Nicole does when she does things for Equality Florida. And we watch really from afar. And she probably doesn't know we do. But and Dempsey's always sitting there just like in awe. And it's just amazing to, you know, be so proud to have to know such an incredible woman who encourages my kid that she can accomplish really great things in life. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm sure you all don't know, but I brag on you both all the time. I'm like, you are the example of what I want every parent to be. She is, I tell the story about her all the time, her energy. There were times I would leave that meeting crying just because I'm like, she's so happy. And to see her happy, I was so sad at that age. You know what I mean? Because I didn't understand where I was or what I was doing. And I'm like, she has a family that accepts her and embraces it and says, be you. And I'm like, I just love how you all love each other. And even more how protective her brothers are of her. I love that because they do not play about their sister. They do not. I love that. No, they do not. (laughs) (laughs) I do. And I think um, the only thing that I wanted to say is that we didn't mention is we get it that not everybody understands the trans experience. But all we ask is to open your minds. Please vote because it's, you know, this is a very, very, very important year. And even if you didn't understand and now this has changed your mind, it's okay. You know, we still welcome you with open arms, even if you hated us a week ago and you're understanding now. All we want is to live authentically. All we want is to be happy and to be accepted. So to the viewers out there, if you still want more information, there's so many resources out there. Just you know, look it up. Don't be scared to ask questions. It's okay to change your mind and change your stance on something, even if it's not the way your family thinks or whatever the case may be, but just please vote. (laughs) If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 